0: Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.
1: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm your host, John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, migration from the nations in the Americas to the U.S. has increased exponentially since the year 2020. In fact, migrants from the region account for more than 75% of encounters with U.S. Border Patrol during the past three years alone a combination of political, economic, and health crises in the region, have resulted in a large exodus from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. The Trump administration implemented Title 42 and the Migrant Protection Protocols, MPP, commonly referred to as the Remain in Mexico program. This resulted in an increase in deportations and border security. The policy has forced migrants to remain in Mexico while they await immigration proceedings in the U.S., Today we'll ask our panel about trends in migration and about shifts in policies in reaction to those trends. Please welcome back to the program, Latin American Program Acting Director, Benjamin Gadan. John, good to be back. Great to have you, Benjamin. Mexico Institute Director, Andrew Rudman.
2: John, hi everybody.
1: Hey, Andrew, great to see you. Canada Institute Director, Christopher Sands. Bonjour, hello, John. Bonjour to you as well, uh, Christopher and Wilson Center Distinguished Fellow, Cindy Arntzen. Hey, John. Great to be with you. Hey, Cindy. Great to see all of you again. So let's dig in. We, we previewed this uh, this discussion of trends. So let's start there with trends. And let's go in the order of introduction and have each of you identify the trends that you're observing right now and whether these trends speak to an increase in migration or a decrease in migration or
3: something altogether unpredictable. Benjamin, you're up. Yeah, I mean, we've seen a sustained increase in migration since basically the end of the Trump administration. Um, There have been changes in the composition of that migration, but typically... Migration to the United States, migration through Latin America is a barometer of the health of the region. And the region is suffering gravely right now. Impacts of climate change, political and economic instability, the public health impacts of the pandemic and the economic consequences. So as the region suffers, Latin Americans are on the move and and many of them arrive at the United States southwest border.
1: You know, I said I was going to do this in the order of introduction, but for very specific reasons, which will be revealed to all momentarily, I'm going to to shift things up. And Cindy, I'm going to come to you next on this question of the trends that you are observing.
4: Sure. Well, I agree with Benjamin that the migration flows um, are unprecedented and have become a very contentious political issue in the United States, as we've seen for for many, many years. Um, It's important to note, however, that the United States is not the only migrant receiving Country in the Americas. This was something that was driven home at the summit of the Americas last June in Los Angeles. Um, There are 6.8 million Venezuelans who have fled that country since about 2014. Um, The vast majority of them, 5.75 million are in Latin America and the Caribbean, and that includes two and a half million in Colombia alone um, and over a million in Peru. Um, Similarly, Nicaraguans have been increasingly fleeing the dictatorship uh, in Nicaragua and going to neighboring Costa Rica. Costa Rica um, is a country of only about five million people, but it's the number Four country globally in terms of the number of asylum applications, the vast majority, something like 90% of those asylum applications um, from Nicaraguans. Um, Costa Rica is only behind the United States, Germany, and Mexico in terms of the number of asylum claims. So it is um, a regional phenomenon, um, but the pressures that Benjamin mentioned, uh, especially the um, economic reversals, The uh, political um, crises in countries like Haiti, which had a president assassinated in 2021 and basically um, has become almost ungoverned, um, if not ungovernable. There have been increased numbers of Haitians, increased numbers of Cubans following um, the street protests that took place in 2021. Um, So there are specific uh, countries that have seen a, a huge spike Um, Central America, also the chronic problems of um, unemployment, of uh, gang violence, of lack of opportunity, especially for young people um, in uh, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. added to climate pressures that that uh, we can talk about later i mean the the drivers have have always been there but i think it would be disingenuous not to um uh to admit or to put out there that um there is a perception in the region that somehow the biden administration was going to be more forgiving towards migration um than president trump was And he has been in certain respects, but in other respects, you know, proponents of immigration reform are greatly critical of the Biden administration for failing to reverse a number of the policies put in place during the Trump years. So there's, I think the predominant um, dynamic is push, um, but there is an element um, of, of pull as well.
1: Well, uh, Cindy, thanks for teeing up the question of uh, differences between these U.S. administrations and what impact it might be having. We are going to move to that next, and I. But before we do that, the reason I switched up the order as I was, you know, thinking of your areas of expertise, uh, Mexico, Andrew, up next. You know, if moving south to north, m- most roads lead to Mexico, right? You sit there in the middle of this as either a destination or an entry point or a pass through. What is the Mexican uh, perspective on trends as we're speaking of them now? What do you, what do you see happening?
2: That's that's a great question, John. And, and and you're right. In in this case, maybe not all, but but many roads do in fact lead to and through Mexico. And and it's you know important to keep in mind, as as my colleagues have noted, that um, a long time ago migration was all it was all Mexicans coming to the United States. And and over time we've had ebbs and flows. Um migration from Mexicans is up right now, and that as as Cindy and Benjamin alluded to, has to do with the pandemic and and the economics and also um, in some cases in in Mexico and other places, of course security i you know I think um we have to highlight or or recognize whenever we talk about this no you know these people are migrating because they're making a rational choice that risking their lives and spending lots of money to pay people off is the best thing for them to do. And, and I think it's just, you know, we have to remember that um, these are pretty dire con- uh, circumstances that people find themselves in. Um, Mexico is, of course, both a sender and a receiver, and Mexico has tried, the AMLO administration has tried to be, um, in one sense, a gatekeeper, trying through its National Guard to reduce the flows and regularize flows going north. Um, so as the, the sort of pipeline approach trying to provide protection for migrants, um, but has also cooperated with the United States uh in that, in the in the flows and also in security matters. Um when uh President Lopez Obrador met with President Biden in July, uh Mexico made a commitment to spend one and a half billion dollars on border uh border infrastructure and border security. So that's not an insignificant contribution to, to the efforts. Um, and, and I think the other thing that to point out, and I'll close there, is that when they met after the Summit of the Americas, and, and Mexico too did not, at least at the presidential level, did not attend the Summit of the Americas, but the two countries in their joint declaration agreed to collaborate on root causes, which gets to that point of people moving because they feel they have to. And on maintaining strong, strong borders. So really, that sort of two sides of the same coin approach.
1: Thanks. Uh, you know, as we continue north, Christopher, uh, clearly this issue is it looks different by the time you reach Canada, right? Uh, as far as people coming in and or people moving out. Give us the Canadian perspective on movement uh, in the Americas.
0: Uh, you know well that's great question john um canada 's got a very open approach to immigration, and that 's because they 've always had a point system so that for regular migration they 're looking for people who have skills that their population needs canada 's about ten percent larger than the United States in terms of land, but then have a little bit more than ten percent of the size of population, so they have a low population density there are a lot of skills they 're looking for and and so that has made migration popular. And to give you a sense, um, last, let's see, the current statistics are for 2021, Canada had about 7.8 million people in the population who had been born abroad. And that's about 22% of Canada's population. That's a very large group. That's a kind of what we would think of as a big migration wave, but that's where the normal set is. Now, if you look at more recent trends, one of the things that's interesting is, those deliberate migrants are declining and canada's had a rate of about 6.1% 6.1 new migrants per 1000 people which is down about 2% from the previous year. And there's been a steady decline over the last decade of people migrating purposefully. On the other hand, refugees are a special case. Refugees have benefited from the very positive attitude about migration and sympathy for where they're coming from, particularly Ukraine. And so last year, 2021, Canada had 130,000 in-migration refugee status uh, uh, successfully applications, uh, successful refugee applications. Sorry, I'm All bumbled here, Uh, but uh, that's a 19% increase over previous years. So Canada's taken that as a very global view. Now, many of those migrants are coming from Asia, and where the Americas comes in, traditionally Canada has not been a a major source of migration from uh, the Western Hemisphere, although they do draw a lot of people from Caribbean countries, and they have done very well, in particular with Haitians, partly through Commonwealth and Francophonie connections. What's that's starting to change. And at the Summit of the Americas, uh, President Biden worked with Justin Trudeau to create a new quota to try to have Canada take 5,000 Central American migrants in the next year, uh, just because there there are so many. And it was a real challenge, but but something that the Canadians have generally embraced. So Canada's role in the hemisphere uh, may start to look like its role globally as a magnet for new migrants, particularly for refugees.
1: Thanks, Chris. And, and Benjamin, I, I just wanted our listeners to know you're in Argentina right now and you had an interesting observation about the, the, the point Cindy made that no one is untouched
3: by the circumstances that we're talking about. It's true, John. I mean, I think often we distinguish the current regional migration crisis by the scale of the crisis and the numbers arriving in the United States. And it's true, the numbers are unprecedentedly high and the numbers have been sustained for, for quite a while. But actually, I think what's new is is the geographic scope. So you point out, I'm in Argentina right now in Buenos Aires, you know, I don't know, over 4,000 miles from Venezuela. There are 170,000 Venezuelans now in this country. There's arepas on every menu. I was just curious the other day at a local bakery, and I asked, are there any Venezuelans working here? And they said, are there any Argentines working here? The entire staff was Venezuelan you know, making these traditional facturas, these Argentine pastries. Um, So it really is incredible. You know, it's Haitians who left Chile, you know, after a different crisis in Haiti and are now traveling all the way up to the United States. It's Cubans at a scale we haven't seen in decades. So really, it's no longer, you know, Mexicans from the South, Guatemalans, Hondurans, Salvadorans. It's almost everyone on the move going almost everywhere in the hemisphere.
1: The the scale and the scope of what we're talking about is, as you mentioned, it's from the small to the large. It's it, enormous. And my, my concern on any discussion like this is that we'll spend a lot of time talking about the problems and run out of time before we can start talking about potential solutions. So uh, let's segue into uh, talking about responses or potential solutions. Cindy, if we could start with you. You know, and one way to think sure. about this is if you could intervene into a certain situation, create more political stability in one country versus another. What do you think would move the needle most effectively that's in the realm of possibility? Cindy?
4: Well, I would say the one thing that would move the needle um, is economic recovery in Venezuela that uh, would lead to, which could only come about, I think, as a result of a of a political settlement there, um, an end uh, that would also lead to an end of U.S. sanctions and I think, you know, be a huge relief for the countries of the region that have been receiving these millions of of migrants. But there have been some really extraordinary responses by countries that have far fewer resources than than the United States um, or even Canada. Um, In Colombia, the previous administration of uh, President Iván Duque declared uh, temporary protected status for about 1.7% um, million Venezuelans that were in Colombia as of January uh, of of this year now those protections don't cover um, people that have entered subsequently and we know that there are hundreds if not thousands of people still leaving Venezuela every day. the closest country the first country that they get to is usually Colombia um, and and nonetheless Colombia which was facing its own you know huge problems during the pandemic decided, to uh, take a bet on on um, on migrants as being an overall plus for the economy, um, something that uh, people that provided an initial uh, or who needed initial humanitarian support. Um, when they first arrived, but over time became entrepreneurs and contributed to the economy. Um, Ecuador has done something similar. Um, uh, Peru is a little bit further behind, but there are efforts to actually integrate um, refugees and migrants um, into the economic and political and, and, and social safety net systems in those countries, which is quite striking given the um overall hostility uh in the united states not only by the federal government but also by state governments municipal governments um two refugees were in a situation now where um there are busloads of people arriving almost every day from the southwest border of the united states trying to make the the um the impact of um, undocumented migration felt in the nation's capital. Of course, it doesn't fall on the federal government to deal with those people. It falls on the municipality. Um, but nonetheless, there is a um, uh, a sense of wanting to, you know, spread the impact of that, you know, beyond the border. Chris Sands. It's interesting, one of
0: the tools that governments have used since 1967 is the UN Convention on the Status of Refugees. And that created an idea the idea of a safe third country rather than have people wander far from home the idea was go to the nearest safe country and then apply to go further afield if you would like status and that was meant to ca- create some control and some safety for people and frontline states of troubled regions like Colombia with regard to Venezuela or Poland now with regard to Ukraine would get assistance often financial assistance and resources from other countries to help manage those populations right close to home well This is now being challenged by something called the Global Compact on Migration, which argues that people migrate and the old idea of 1967 where you need to stay close to home because you wanted to be able to get back. Now with the internet and cell phones and so on, being far away is no no huge barrier to be able to go back and eventually repatriate. So they're looking to put people further afield. Canada has in 2020 an amazing case brought by the Canadian Council on Refugees against the government that argued that, the, that Canada had designated the United States a safe third country for migrants coming from the Caribbean and from Latin America. And that this designation was not thoroughly granted. And that actually in 2020, Canada then in the Trump, uh, looking at the Trump administration in the United States was wrong to say that the U.S. was a safe third country. So the court invalidated that designation of the U.S. as a safe third country, uh, leaving Canada in a bit of a bind. They asked for a stay of the judgment. And this year, in 2022, the Supreme Court of Canada is again reviewing the government's uh, finding that the U.S. is a safe third country. If they lose that, it's going to be very tough for the Canadian government to manage migration flows. It's a sleeper story, but one that has big implications for U.S.-Canada relations.
1: Thanks, Chris. Andrew Rudman.
2: Thanks, John. I, I just, you know, I I think it, as you said, we should talk a little bit about what you know, kind of, what do we do about it? And um, you know, I think for for the U.S., one one thing to keep in mind is that the number of of currently unfilled jobs, that is, the the number of of jobs for which there's no workers, is numerically pretty close to equal to the decrease in legal migration into the United States over the past few years. So there's a pretty clear supply and demand mismatch there um, that could be addressed. And and one way to do that would be expansion of the H-2A, which is the temporary agricultural worker visas, and the H-2B, which is the non-agricultural and unskilled workers. There's clearly a lot of demand. Uh, What we see, particularly in agriculture, which is so critically important for U.S. Mexico, is that Americans uh you know citizens of the u s don't want to work in the fields, and so you see have Mexicans picking produce across North America, and uh, increasing those numbers perhaps has been talked about before, um, facilitating access to h two a visas from Central Americans would be one way to both uh, address our labor shortage, which which obviously has an impact on inflation and also regularize migration um, And, uh, you know, fixing a longer term, fixing our asylum system is is something that people also talk about. Just, you know, you have all these people who are essentially waiting for their cases to be heard. I I think one question it poses that I don't have an answer to is a lot of the people claiming asylum are probably not going to get it because uh, economics is not usually a a justification. So I think that does lead future to you get through all the applicants and then you have to figure out what happens to the people who get who don't or aren't granted asylum.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Uh, you know, Benjamin, we, we've talked a lot about the notion that if certain circumstances could be improved, people would be less likely to leave home, but they are leaving home because that's not the case. How should we think about this? Are people moving permanently? Is this an exodus that will last for the rest of their lives? Or are they biding their time until things improve and then they'll at least hope to return home? Do we have any data that lets us know about what the circumstances are and what the implications are if these are permanent
3: moves? Yeah, thanks for asking that, John. I think we have to be realistic about the plans that these migrants have when they flee from their homes. And if they don't plan to return, we need to plan for their integration into their new communities. I'm glad Andrew brought up job opportunities in the United States. The same kinds of conversations need to be happening in lots of countries throughout the Americas. And you asked John about data, there is plenty of survey data that shows that people leaving places like Venezuela, Nicaragua, they don't plan to return home anytime soon, nor is there any prospect of solving the political and economic problems, the security problems, the climate change problems that have led them to leave their homes and communities. And so given the scale of the challenges and their homes. And given the data we have on their intentions, I think we have to think seriously about ways to increase job opportunities for them to regularize their status. We in Los Angeles, during the summit of the Americas, we hosted the then president of Colombia, the president of Ecuador, and a lot of experts. And the subject was not how do we find ways to temporarily warehouse these individuals until they can go back home, but rather, how do we integrate them into their new communities so they can be productive and welcome members of their new homes?
1: Thanks. Uh, We're almost out of time. But Cindy, you raised earlier a disappointment among people who'd like to see reforms, uh, disappointment with the Biden administration and its actions or lack of actions. Uh, I want to ask you about that because I'm reminded of the old, you know, uh, adage of walking and chewing gum at the same time. And we've had the Russian invasion of Ukraine and all kinds of major issues to deal with. Is there an expectation that the Biden administration will get to this, or is it just not as large a priority as many hoped it would be?
4: Well, it should be a priority because it's such a politically divisive um, topic in in this country and is um, used for political ends through just the sheer mobilization of of xenophobia. Um, The truth is there are no easy solutions to migration. The push dynamics are not going to go away. Um, even if we could address root causes of uh, the Central American crises, multiple crises, it's still going to be a, at least a decade. And we've already been trying for close to a decade uh, to, to address those issues. Climate change is only going to get worse, creating um, more drought, more flooding, more hurricanes, You know, more pressures for people to migrate. Um, There was an effort um, over a decade ago to come up with a bipartisan agreement um, on migration in the U.S. Senate, and it went nowhere. Um, And I think that there really, there need to be solutions that come um, from a real sort of effort to come to grips in a bipartisan way with the pressures of migration. And I, I think that in the kinds of Polarized environment that that we live in, that kind of agreement is um, um, is not going to be likely. So I think the Biden administration is doing its best to manage it to be more humane. They're not separating children from their parents, as happened, you know, in previous years. Um, uh, But they also have to keep this uh, border issue from blowing up in their faces politically. Um, And some border states are, in fact, swing states. So it's uh, very politically complicated, no easy solutions. And I would say no bipartisan compromises on the horizon.
1: Speaking of those uh, political complications, uh, you know, our crack team in the Mexico Institute, I see Andrew has told me that Lila has informed him uh, that, you know, for. Border governorships in the U.S. are up for grabs in the November election. And so, as we know, domestic politics often intervenes uh, when it comes to international crises and things that need to be handled across borders. So that's something to watch as well. Uh, You know, there's no neat, tidy package to end the discussion like this. So what we can just do is pledge to our listeners that we'll revisit it. Right. Because there's always more to talk to uh, talk about. But thank you, Cindy Benjamin, Chris Andrew. Uh, We look forward to learning more from you in future episodes, and thanks for your insights this time around. Uh, This episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Cecily Fasinella, and Zoe Reed, with the assistance of Joseph Bouchard, Thomas Michael, and Sophia Schuckner. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll join us again next time. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us.
0: You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.